Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by LionRock.life. I really had him up on a, a pedestal. I really felt like we had everything we could possibly want in a relationship. I was very happy with him. I felt like he was very happy with me and life was going really, really well. I viewed him... Uh, as my soulmate, I viewed him. I mean, I, when I say pedestal, I mean, it was up there. <laughs> I viewed him as like this perfect partner. He was my Prince Charming. He was on the white horse, you know, all the whole shebang. And so then in 2021, uh, January 31st, I began to find out that he had had this decade plus cyber sex addiction. And it just blew my mind. It just absolutely destroyed my world. It destroyed what I thought our relationship was. It destroyed what I thought the reality I was living was. I thought I knew this person. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Your Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Kyleen Terhune. Kyleen believed she had a wonderful marriage. She'd spent eight years with a man she loved and trusted. They had their moments, but for the most part, things were great. Then one day, a single discovery turned into a string of discoveries that eventually unveiled a 10-year cyber sex addiction that was costing $50,000 a year. She felt like she no longer knew the man she'd married. The loss of trust brought up so many complicated emotions and eventually panic attacks. It didn't feel like there was any chance of saving the marriage. The only thing that made her stay was her husband's complete admission and his true desire to change. It was that moment that started a journey of recovery for both of them that involved many difficult and uncomfortable conversations, therapy, and even work with a polygraph machine. Today, their marriage is better than it's ever been with continued hard work and honesty, even when the work feels like it should be done. I really enjoyed this conversation with Kyleen. I could relate to her on a lot of topics, but I also got to step into her shoes and see things the way she saw them. I love that Kyleen and her husband are out there trying to reduce stigma around the topic of sexual betrayal trauma. Kyleen has done a ton of work and so has her husband in order to keep their marriage together. And it sounds like it being a happy marriage is a of utmost importance to them, which I really, really like to hear. One thing that Kyleen stresses in all of her messages on her TikTok and social media are that situations like this require boundaries and consequences. And I think this is very, very important for people to remember and hear what those can look like, how those can be helpful, and that sweeping something like this under the rug is not the right answer. Kyleen has a lot of great advice and she works as a faith-based sexual betrayal coach. I love the stuff she's putting out there. Please go check it out. And without further ado, I give you Kyleen Terhune. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Thank you so much for being here, Kylene. Yeah, I'm so excited. Thank you so much for having me. Me too. Me too. So I want to open this with a disclaimer, which is I'm going to ask you a lot of questions to try to understand as someone looking at it from a different perspective. So because I, what I love about your story is that you are recovering within the, the structure of living a religious life and belief system. And so I think that's an important thing to add in here because a lot of the time, I think sometimes it's like, well, that doesn't make sense. I don't understand. Well, if this is also your lifestyle, then these things apply. So I really, I, I definitely want to get into that. But can you tell me a little bit about you, where you live, your husband, that sort of thing? Sure. So I am a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and sexual betrayal trauma recovery coach. And I live in Ohio. I have a dog and a cat and a son at West Point. Uh, I met my husband back in 
oh, I always get this wrong. It's either 2011 or 2012. <laughs> I think it was 2012. And uh, he had moved here for his job. He had moved around quite a lot. And so fully anticipated that he would move again. And I have been kind of born and raised in this area. And my family lives like 30 minutes down the road. But um, I met him and fell in love pretty quickly. I really thought that this was my Prince Charming. I had been married and divorced previously. So had my current husband. And so that was actually a, a, a little bit of a bonding point for us and sharing our past experiences and what we wanted in a partner and what we wanted in a relationship. And once we had a date where it was just us and we were just talking, we really clicked and we we kind of closed everything down that night. We couldn't stop talking. We really enjoyed each other. So the the long story short is that I really had him up on a, a pedestal. I really felt like we had everything we could possibly want in a relationship. I was very happy with him. I felt like he was very happy with me and life was going really, really well. I viewed him uh, as my soulmate. I viewed him... I mean, I, when I say pedestal, I mean, it was up there. <laughs> I viewed him as like this perfect partner. He was my Prince Charming. He was on the white horse, you know, all the whole shebang. And so then in 2021, uh, January 31st, I began to find out that he had had this decade plus cyber sex addiction. And it just blew my mind. It just absolutely destroyed my world. It destroyed what I thought our relationship was. It destroyed what I thought the reality I was living was. I thought I knew this person. And um, we've had conversations about relationships. We've had conversations about what we believe. We've had conversations about how I feel about pornography. We've had conversations about cheating. We've had all of those conversations. It's not like we weren't talking about it, you know? So when this came out, I was just absolutely devastated and floored, to be honest. It was such a shock. And so that was really the the start of of the recovery journey was January 31st, 2021. Given how you describe what your relationship was like with your your current husband, what made you look? What made you... Were there any little thing... Like there's something people say, well, that there's no way. I couldn't believe it. But then you then we start to un- unravel a little bit. And there's something that makes us look. Some, there's like little things yeah. where we're like, well, that doesn't check out. Yeah. So it, this is crazy because I was not looking. I was not... It felt... It, Oh, Almost <laughs> fell into my lap. Yeah. When I say I was shocked, I mean, I was shocked. Had January 30th come along and you told me my husband was looking at pornography and had been engaging with women like in real time virtually, like I I would have been like, you you don't know what you're talking about. So January 31st, basically, we were going to sit down and budget. And I was so excited about it. So I thought it was great. He had printed out this budget where he had itemized all of our expenses. So that's so nice, right? I did not have to go into the bank account. And so we were sitting there canceling all of our recurring charges, which is really fun, by the way. And uh, you're like, I can't, yeah, we're going to save some money here, right? So uh, we're doing that. And I find a charge that I knew about. It was like a fitness app. And I just could not figure out how to cancel it. So I just couldn't figure it out. So they make you call, tell them to give you their firstborn child. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It was one of those that was like not easy, right? So I'm trying to figure out how do we cancel this because we're not using this app. So I asked for his phone because I thought, well, it's an app. Maybe it was a purchased app through his phone. So that was really kind of when the light dropped out of the sky because the uh, I go into his purchase apps, I scroll down looking for it. And there's these other apps that look very inappropriate. What made it a little more confusing and what delayed a little bit of the, the full aha was that this was the time where all of those, all that censorship on social media was going on. And everyone was downloading the other messaging apps like Telegram and things like that. So some of these looked like they could be that. And so it was a little bit confusing. And then there were one or two that just looked raunchy, like they just did not look appropriate. And so I asked him, I was like, what are these? And of course, he he denied it and was like, I have no idea why these are on my phone. And but his stress response was really high. So I was trying to figure this out because I had at this point, almost a decade of knowing this person. And like, trusting him. And he's, he always does what he says he's going to do. He's someone that gets things done. He's always present. Like we had a good relationship. Like I just really never thought he would do this. And so at this point, I trusted him implicitly. And I was like, man, if, if these got on your phone accidentally, this is a problem. Like this, this is a real issue that should be resolved, right? Like let's pursue this. So I, the, the next 24 hours, there are a couple spots that are a little blurry because as things began to come out, the stress obviously, you know, got higher and higher. But 
I do remember one of the things that was really a big red flag for me was his stress response. So I remember saying to him, I was like, Hey, your level of response to this is not what I would consider normal for being innocent. To that point, we have a chair that kind of kind of moves like this in the living room, it, it flexes a little bit. And I was sitting in that chair, he was behind me and the chair was moving because his heart was beating so hard. So I knew that he was stressed and I called him on it. And he said, well, I just, I wouldn't want you to think that I would do something like that because I know how you feel about it. He was using that as the excuse of why he was so stressed out because he knew that if I found out about something like this, it would really, he felt like that would be the end of our relationship at the time. Then I believe it was the same night we had a dinner planned and we decided to go anyway. And I just kept asking questions because I was trying to find out why these apps were on his phone, how did they get there, you know, and then eventually it was kind of coming out that, oh, they were things that he downloaded. And I think he was making these little, he was saying these partial, tiny little baby truths at first to kind of hide the big, the big iceberg, right? And just give me a little bit of information. And so little things started coming out like, oh, he did download them. And I'm like, okay, well, like, how are they advertised? Like, what did you think they were? Because if they, if you downloaded them, and it wasn't what you thought, like, what did you think it was, right? So long story short, eventually, it came out that they were being advertised as dating apps, which again, was a partial truth kind of a lie. But that was enough for me to ask the question. So wait a second, they were being advertised as dating apps, you downloaded it, you're saying that you didn't communicate to anyone. But I'm not sure that that's a good No, that's not a good lie. It's not a good lie. I'm on a dating app. That's not helpful. I know. But well, at this point, he was still sticking to I hadn't reached out to anyone. So but that was enough for me. Because um, I mean, he was my whole life. He was my world. I absolutely adored him. And thought that we had this amazing relationship. So I asked and I said, so that means you thought about cheating on me, like you were considering cheating on me. And that's as far as I got that night, because he said yes. And I excused myself from the table, walked out, had a full on panic attack in the car, called my friend, I was just like in absolute hyperventilation mode trying to process how this person that I love could like sit there and contemplate having an affair. Eventually he I hung up with my friend. He my husband came into the car. I continued to to cry and, and that was that day. Essentially over the next twenty four hours or so he actually started confessing, which is a little um a little unusual how our process happened. Um, because he actually did voluntarily begin to come forward and start to share more and more about his story and what he was struggling with. He really ultimately wanted to be rid of it. And so he baby stepped himself into confession. What do you... So it sounds like you had had conversations about pornography, right? So like, that's another piece of this too, that I think is important to bring up, which is at the end of the day, our relationships are about our agreements, right? With my husband, I don't care what he looks at. I mean, I care if he is breaking our commitment to each other, but our commitment doesn't include pornography. I don't I personally, but that's again, I understand that that's not maybe even the norm. But when you have had a conversation, an agreement, and someone breaks that particular trust, it is so disruptive and so destabilizing because you're like, who are you? I thought, but I live up to my end of the bargain. What's, you know, what, what, what else isn't true? So tell me a little bit about what were your conversations? What were your commitments to each other where this went against that? So, so we have a Christian marriage. So we both came from a Christian perspective. So within that, um, within the way we view marriage and the commitment to each other, it is just us. So really my definition of infidelity would be any sexual gratification outside of our relationship that you're intentionally choosing to be sexually aroused by someone else. So that in and of itself is the kind of the agreement. And we did have um, conversations. He knew how I felt about, you know, my experience with my ex-husband. I had asked him before we got married. I think I shared that story and we had a conversation about his experiences with pornography. His answer at that time before we, this was even before we got engaged. His uh, answer at that time was that it was something that he had engaged in in the past. He didn't like who he was and he had stopped. To be fair, at that point in his life, I think one of the constant things that he would tell himself is that he was in control of it. Over time, it became very much an addiction that really spiraled. But yeah, so we did have a lot of those conversations. So there's the verbal commitment and then also the faith commitment that we sort of came from the same perspective with that. So there were conversations about that. Were there, and we we can get into this, were there conversations with regard to the financial portion of this like like agreements or either spoken or not spoken? 
Oh man, that's a heavy one, right? Because he spent a lot of money. And that is something that could have been caught a lot sooner had I been proactive in our finances. And that was just... I just really trusted him. We're very blessed and financially stable. And so I wasn't really concerned about our money too much or what I felt like was just that we were in a very safe financial position. And so I didn't worry about it. I would ask him periodically, Hey, do we have money for this? Or Hey, are we a little tight right now? You know, I would have those types of conversations, but I was not. And this was only on me. I was not actively in those accounts myself, checking them weekly, monthly, annually, anything like that. I just basically trusted him and kind of let him be in charge of it. That is something that had I been more involved in it, it could have, I could have found out much sooner, much, much sooner. So you find the apps. He, you know, it's bad when your lie is that it was a dating app. I know. You know, I know, you're like, I know. You're like, you're like that's, that's not going to help. So the next stage, when do you start to really, so he starts to, to disclose. When do you kind of, when do you have the full picture and what was that like? Oh, that was a painful process. So I got the bulk of it within the first two days because as he started to confess, more and more came out. There were two definitive moments within that where one moment was on the edge of our bed and he started the beginning of his confessions. And again, it was that partial truth of, well, the past six months, right? And so then I was like, whoa, what's, what's, he was sobbing at this point. He was completely just broken and really upset. I was both shocked in that moment and also like, whoa, what is happening? You need to be stabilized because he was in like complete distress at that point. And then it was either later that afternoon or the uh, the next day that he actually told me the next layer. So what his confession on the bed essentially had been was that he had really been struggling with a draw towards pornography for the past six months and that it had gotten really bad and he was hearing voices and just, I mean, it was just like, it was terrible the way he was explaining it. Uh, The next big moment was in our closet and he just looked kind of distraught. I said, he, you know, you're kind of worrying me. And he's like, I need to tell you the full truth. And so that's when he really pulled back the curtain of like, I was engaging with in cyber sex, like I was engaging with live women, I was paying them, you know, it was real time, all this kind of stuff. And I was just I was on the floor, quite literally on the the closet floor, but it floored me. You know, I, I was very naive. I did not even know what all was out there, much less to think that my husband would be engaging in that way. Then I got into the bank accounts and I started looking at everything once all this came out. And then I really saw, you know, how many hits a day there were and how much it cost and how much overtime had developed in a way that was helpful because you know you always as the betrayed partner are going to struggle with the question was it a choice that you were making to betray me um was it an addiction how do you reconcile those two i always say that it starts out as a choice and turns into an addiction and when i looked at the bank accounts one of the things that was helpful was really seeing very clearly the addict pattern of the binge purge cycle. And so that became very clear. I was able to see... We were able to go back only about 2 years. So the total uh, spend that I have was over a 2-year period. And then I was able to see how the frequency increased over time and what those binge purge cycles look like. So in a way, that was helpful. But also, it was... I mean, I can't, I really cannot put words to the feeling that you have when you look into your bank accounts and see how much money was spent on sexual gratification with other women. It's so gross. It's so humiliating. And I was constantly triggered while I was discovering new information. Uh, it really took several weeks for him to get to the place as he was getting into sobriety and realizing the devastation that he finally came to the place where he was like, any question you ask me, I'll tell you the truth and the whole truth. So at that point, we had total honesty moving forward. How much did he spend in those two years that you were able to track? Within those two years, it was $100,000. And do you think that when you look back, are there things that didn't make sense that have that now like behaviors or little things that you didn't think anything of that now kind of, you know, clarify. Yeah. So I remember being so shocked because I was like, this is like our relationship is amazing and you're so great. And I just, I did not see this coming. He really hit it well. He really, really hit it well. So as I was getting into recovery and seeing him change and learning about all this, there were a couple things that did come up. Even as I am going to communicate this and share this, I still don't know that there's any reason that at the time I should have noticed them as red flags. 
But looking back, there were a couple things that that came out. One was lack of spooning and cuddling in bed. (laughs) So just the lack of cuddling and closeness had really, um, you know, we started kind of sleeping on opposite sides of the bed. And uh, when I looked back, I was like, Oh my gosh, I think there were some I think there was some distance that had been created that I didn't really recognize. Or if I did recognize, I thought, well, we've been married a long time. This is just ebb and flow, you know, things happen. It's not as it's not, you know, as as like you're you're dating anymore or whatever. So that was just kind of a real small thing. And then there were a couple instances where he had these outbursts of anger. He's not an angry person. He um, is very even keel, very chill. And I remember being like, that is not that's kind of not normal, right? And it kind of just perked up a little thing. But even that was only maybe twice in the six months prior to discovery. So I mean, he just hit it really, really well. So there was not a lot. I actually see it's interesting through recovery. Now looking back, I actually see more changes in recovery in his character and personality than I would necessarily say I saw red flags leading into it. Right, right. So you find out this information, you know, it's World War Three, you know, because now you also don't know what's true. Because you're still, you know, it's like, when when is when is the information going to stop coming out? Where do you go? Who do you I mean, obviously, call some girlfriends, who are the first people you employ to come help you? The first person I called was a friend of mine who had been brave enough to talk to me years before this happened because her husband was a sex addict and she confided in me that they had gone through that. And his story was a little different than my husband's, but I knew that she would know what I'm experiencing. And actually, I think I called her before I had some of the bigger pieces of information. I actually think I reached out to her when I thought he hadn't actually taken action on anything. Right, still, right, right, right. I was still working under the assumption that it was just, you know, I don't know, maybe a little bit of pornography or maybe downloading that dating app or whatever it was, right? So I did not have the full information when I reached out to her, but she immediately pointed me into the right recovery resources. And I stayed in contact with her kind of as I found more and more and more and more and more out. And so the support team that we put in place very quickly was we got him into a support group called Conquer from Pure Desire Ministries. And that was actually in a local church. So we had one locally that we could plug him into. I found out on a Saturday, I think he was in that support group by the next Thursday. And then it was the week after that, that he got connected with a CSAT therapist, which is Certified Sex Addiction Therapy. And they actually go through a, um, a testing process to see like, do you find, do you actually fall within the addiction range? And within that, what range are you and how strong is the addiction and that sort of thing? And come to find out, I was married to a very, very strong strongly addicted sex addict. So that was just a whole process. In the beginning, I was kind of like, fuck you. This is your problem. Get your shit together. (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, And I really... I was like, this is on you. I do not want to go to therapy. I had had some experiences in the past that kind of turned me off from therapy. And I was kind of nervous about it. Honestly, I was really nervous about going to see a therapist. And I, I, like I said, I had, I'd had some experiences in the past that just really made that uncomfortable for me. And I just was like, I don't know what's happening. I need to figure this out. I did hire a coach that does betrayal. She's like an abuse and betrayal trauma and stuff like that. So my husband always jokes because he was like, I, he knew when I would have calls with her that when he'd get home, we, we may have a conversation. <laughs> Because because she was the one that would be like, you need to check your credit scores, you need to check your bank accounts, you need to do this. And she was in total protection mode. Like you need to make sure you're protected. You need to know the whole truth. Addicts are always going to lie to you. He might relapse. Like you need to get your stuff organized, right? And so sure enough, I would go do what she told me to do. And I would find more stuff. And then, you know, Ultimately, we would have to have a conversation with that. And um, so that was a whole process. Within a few months or so, the one thing about Patrick and I, and this is one of the reasons I think our relationship has survived, we both very much have a, a growth mentality. And we both really want to become better people and learn and, and, and all of that. And so he, when he saw that there was an opportunity, that there was a path out, because he, he was absolutely internally just distraught with his behavior. He had tried to quit many times before I discovered it. And I I actually found documentation of that. So when he was given a plan and a path, he was so excited. I remember when I dropped him off at the uh, support group because, you know, trust but verify. Are you really going? I gotta make sure sure you're going, man. So I went with him, right? And I waited in the parking lot. When he came back, he was so 
happy and so excited because there was a process that he could follow that basically, you know, led him to freedom. And that's how he viewed it. And he was so pumped up about it. So he jumped into all of that, did all the resources. I started reading books. I started getting informed about betrayal trauma. And one of the things that just was so helpful to me was the terminology. When I heard the term sexual betrayal trauma, it put words to how deep the pain was for me. When I learned that like 70% of the women that go through this have PTSD like symptoms, it, you know, started to make sense and to validate my experience. And so I was like, this is, this is serious. You know, it's legitimate. And uh, this is a, this is a problem that I'm also going through. And so it was fairly soon, like maybe a couple months into it that I started plugging into CSAT therapy, EMDR support group, all of that. So CSAT therapy is for sex addicts, but a lot of them also do work with betrayed partners because they're so familiar with the betrayal that comes from it. Pretty quickly, we started getting super educated and then jumping into the support groups too. Was there at any point where you were like, yeah, this is too much work for me? Like I, this is, I mean, listen, even if it is a you problem, right? When I say you as in, as in Patrick, you're still going to do a shit ton of work to get to where you, you still have to, to, to do a lot of work. And anybody who's out there, if they're dealing with this type of trauma and they think that it's just the partner who's going to do the work, they have another thing coming because you're going to have to really work at it. Were you ever like, yeah, I just, I don't want to work this hard. Oh, pretty much every day for about the first year. <laughs> I, I mean, I, to be honest with you, so this is coming into our third year of recovery. So the first year was survival. The second year was kind of getting to know each other again. And it's only just now that I feel like we're kind of getting back into like we're dating again. And it blew everything up. That is such a good question. Because I actually remember being in the bedroom. There were a lot of discoveries in the bedroom. There was a lot of questioning that happened in the master bedroom. And I was like, what about this? What about this? And what about this? And uh a lot of shaking and a lot of crying and a lot of, you know, you know, trauma response going on there. When I found out that it typically takes a sex addict two to five years to get into full recovery, I I about wanted to vomit. I was like, what is this life that you have now thrown me into? I thought everything was fine. I'm like, Hey, I'm in the phase. Like, let's, you know, let's work on our sex life. Let's like do this. Let's enjoy vacations. Like whatever, you know, it's like happy go lucky. And then the next day I'm facing two to five years of recovery for my husband. What does that mean for me? Massive amounts of trauma, self-worth completely destroyed, just feeling horrible. And I don't even know who you are. And you know, a lot of women, if they are in a a faith uh, background will feel pressured sometimes to forgive and move on. And I think that's like the absolute worst response. You, I had to sit back and watch and see what he was going to do. I needed to give it time to see, first of all, was he going to recover? Was he going to relapse? I didn't know. You know, was he going to be, you know, this amazing person? Like in my mind, I did have this. I really liked him as a person. And I thought, you know, if I liked what I thought was the whole person, and there's this really bad part that has just destroyed us, what can happen if that part is gone? Can it be better? And that's kind of what I was working towards and, and hoping for. And ultimately did discover that that was the route that we were going to go. And I'm really thankful for that. But no, it was not easy. It was incredibly, it was incredibly painful. And there were many days where I was absolutely depressed, morbidly depressed, overwhelmed, did not want to do anything. I completely, I run my own businesses and um, completely dropped the ball that year. Just, it's just a lot of things in my life fell apart as I began to process that. Yeah. So I, I definitely, there were a lot of days where I just didn't want to do it. With sex addiction, I think a lot of people think that sex addiction is someone who just wants to have sex all the time, right? And so I think it's almost, it's kind of a misnomer where where sex addiction doesn't look like, how could you not know they're a sex addict? Aren't they bothering you for sex 24-7? Well, no, that's not what it looks like. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned about sex addiction in this process? Yeah, that's a so such a good point because I had all of that in my head too, right? Like you only hear like every once in a while, oh, some celebrity is a sex addict and you make assumptions about what that means. And I had no idea what the reality of that was. So you may think that they want to have sex with you all the time. The other side of that is people will throw out, well, if you just had enough sex with him, he wouldn't have been an addict. So it's my fault that he went to pursue this, you know? And I get a lot of that on social media. Like, obviously, I wasn't giving it up. I wasn't like, cool, cool. Thanks for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really nice boost of self confidence. Appreciate that there. Super Um, helpful. (laughs) I'll get right on that. Right. Yeah. 
So, I mean, both ends of that are really damaging for the spouse, right? Because they actually do believe some of that. They're like, well, was I not having enough sex? Was I not pretty enough? Was it me? Like we internalize all of that and we really have to go through our own healing journey to to process that. And one of the things that helps is learning about sex addiction. And what you learn is that it really has nothing to do with sex at all. So there are men who engage in this behavior and don't have any guilt or shame about it and like it and whatever. It may be a full-on addiction. It may not, whatever. But when it's an addiction that you are really struggling with and you feel guilt and shame and all this kind of stuff, that is driven completely by wounds and traumas and emotions that are unresolved. Just like any other behavior that is an addiction. It's the same across the board. So for my husband, he had a lot of trauma in his history that was unresolved. He had a massive traumatic event in his life where uh, he went to like therapy one time and then was like, okay, I'm good. And you know, he, he just didn't know what he knows now about how to process his emotions. And so that is one of the things that you know, when, when women, when women say, Oh, well, how can I know if he's getting into recovery? There's a difference between sobriety and recovery. So sobriety is like, you are white knuckling, you are struggling against the behavior, you're trying not to do it, but it's hard. And recovery is really this process of stepping into this new identity. Like that's not who I am anymore. And my, the, the traumas and the wounds that led me to self-medicate are now addressed. I now have processed those feelings in a healthy way. And I have I have support that I reach out to. I'm proactive instead of reactive. I name and manage my emotions now. So one of the things you'll notice a lot is that they start maybe crying more or expressing their emotions or like Patrick would come to me and be like, I'm feeling anxiety today. And I'm like, that's great. You're not self-medicating it, right? Like, good. You know, and he was going to therapy every week and he was going through his old traumas and his old emotions and, and old wounds that had never been resolved and processing them and getting help for them. And it was a really as painful as my recovery was as I was watching him do this. It was really cool to see him stepping into this wholeheartedly and really getting that support. But sex addiction really has nothing to do with sex. It really has everything to do with with medicating pain that they have in their life. And so the recovery process really uh, is involving really figuring out what that is. What's the process that leads you into the behavior? And what are the emotional wounds that trigger that process? Yes, yes, absolutely. And all addiction really, you know, is it's about pain and ha- brain chemistry and habit and triggers and all of that. But you're, it's rarely just about that thing. And with the gambling or the sex addiction or the, you know, that can be very confusing. Like, well, okay, so what am I, what am I doing wrong here? Okay. So in relationships I've had where there's been huge betrayal, when I have tried to make it work, and again, just my experience, not necessarily the experience of everybody else, but I am very type A, you know, take charge, all the things, oldest child. Yeah. So my experience is when I'm like hands off until you fuck it up and I am up your ass coming out your mouth, right? Because I feel like, well, I gave you the opportunity to manage this by yourself and you were not able to do so, you know, as I always say to everyone in my house, when they, you know, you're treating me like a, whatever, a baby, a teenager, whether it's my kids or my husband, I'm like, but you're acting like one. So just don't do that. And then we can change that. For me, when I have had that, and when I'm responding and I'm doing this process of managing risk, which is really what I'm doing, right? I'm managing risk for me. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I find it nearly impossible not to be very emasculating. And I struggle with that because I understand that it changes the dynamic of our relationship, but it's also, I have to manage the risk for me and what I'm willing to live, like the risk I'm willing to live with, because I've been shown that this shouldn't be a no brainer. In my marriage, there's certain dynamics that we've worked through that that we've talked about and in couples counseling or whatever. But like, that's the first thing that happens for me is I just, I basically take control of everything. You are no longer allowed to run your own ship. How do you marry this idea of relationship and health and recovery into these feelings of like needing to manage your own risk for your own mental health? Mm. So there for us, there were kind of a few things that play into that. So I definitely set really strong boundaries for what that looked like. And I always try to to share uh, you know, on social and, and in my platform and everything, boundaries are really just saying, this is what's required to stay in relationship with me. Listen, that this is out in the open. And if you choose to do this again, <laughs> I'm out, you know? And for me, I did set a very strong boundary very quickly, which a lot of people may not agree with and may not understand. But for me, I said, if you relapse, 
I will leave. And that is, that's the end all be all. There's not going to be any ifs, ands, or buts about this. You're going to get into recovery or not, but that is where I'm headed with this. And, and I did a lot of work myself to get to the place where I felt really confident that I could act on that. I did have to go into whatever you want to call leadership role, in charge role, because he in the beginning was in total distress mode. So this was not a situation where, oh, I found out you're in trouble. And if this is just all me being upset, he was absolutely crushed. He hated this. So he was just floundering, trying to figure out what can I do to, you know, respect your boundaries? What can I do to recover? What do I need? So there was a couple things that happened. I I went into I'm in charge of everything. I'm in charge of all the money, which by the way, I did not like that. I went from one extreme to the complete opposite of like, now I have to figure everything out, right? I hate those. Did not like that, but did it anyway. So I had to I had to figure out systems for whatever it was that we needed. Now this is going to be different for everybody, right? Because everybody's addiction is going to have a little bit of different processes. So the boundaries you set in place are going to be maybe set at different times, the way you check in with each other, the way you communicate, does it involve money? Does it not involve money? He did not have a debit card. We had some cash in the house that he had to a lot for like where it went to when he would use it, things like that. Like it was, it was extreme for a while, but this was all completely mutual. He wanted the accountability. He wanted the support. He needed the boundaries. I needed the safety provided by that. And then over time, as I learned that he was completely committed and consistent, things kind of loosened up a little bit here and there as it became appropriate. But essentially, he, I don't want to say handed over the reins like he was in charge in the beginning, but essentially handed over the reins in in whatever healthy way you want to say that um, and was like, here, like, you are in charge. And I was like, okay, cool. This is this is what has to happen for your recovery, for my safety. This is the way it's going to work for now. It's kind of hard to explain to answer all of those questions um, succinctly. But it was a multi-step process that we both participated in. He was very accommodating and willing to do it. He wanted to do it every step of the way. I never really forced him to do anything. So for example, one of the quote unquote more extreme things that we did that's actually not extreme, it's super normal in the sex addiction community. <laughs> but but anyway, everyone on social media thinks this is extreme is we did have him do a polygraph. And that was something that, you know, you were talking about trust earlier and really having known this person and thinking we were on the same page. It's like how, you know, you were such a good liar to me for so long about this thing, right? It's like, how can I believe that you're telling the truth now? Well, let's get some, let's get some confirmation on that. And so he did do that. He did voluntarily do that. And um, that was really helpful for beginning to lay that foundation. But in a weird way, I did respect him through the process. Like it's kind of kind of hard to explain. I, like I said, I really liked him as a person and I respected the effort that he was putting into making me feel safe and the effort he was putting into his own recovery and the seriousness with which he was taking it. There was no gaslighting. There was no blaming. There was no manipulation. Not one single time did he ever say, well, if you had had more sex with me or you know anything along those lines, but we faltered a lot. You know, there's different communication styles and you know, different attachment styles, which we learned through this process that I have anxious attachment and he had avoidant attachment, which is literally like the worst combination when you're dealing with massive amounts of stress, right? I'm like, you have to stay and talk this through. And he's like, I hurt you. I need to leave. And I'm like, don't abandon me, right? So, I mean, there were a lot of things like that that we had to work through as we were going through these really, really hard conversations and as I would get triggered through it. But I essentially took control because I needed to be in control. And then as he demonstrated consistency in his recovery and and real change and real consistency, that's just really loosened up and we've really come back to a mutuality on most things. What are some of the skills and boundaries and tools that you guys have used to put your marriage back together? A lot of communication. I mean, I can't really underscore that enough though, because we hear a lot of stories from a lot of different couples and a lot of different experiences around this. One of the things that, I don't know, it's probably a strength and a weakness, but what's in my head comes out my mouth. My husband (laughs) knew... (laughs) He knew how I was feeling and what I needed at any time through all of the process, right? There is no guessing if I am triggered. All of it is being very proactive. Eventually, you kind of anticipate each other's needs. So part of the recovery process with the addict is really learning empathy. And so as they get into recovery and do a lot of that work and process their emotions, they really learn how to empathize and 
really anticipate what you're, what's going to trigger you and you know, what that's going to look like and how it's going to feel for you. And so he's done a great job with that. So a lot of communication, like I mentioned, we both got therapy. We both did a lot of trauma work. I ended up getting, cause I had a coaching practice before this, got new certifications working more in trauma and emotional processing that helped me first. And that was one of the things that in terms of tools and resources that really helped me break through some walls that were still in front of me in terms of moving forward into a relationship that I viewed as really healthy and happy. Because one of the things that I was really committed to was from the beginning, I was like, I do not want to stand up here as a beacon of, of hope for misery for couples who want to make it. I want to be up here as a beacon of hope for like, no, you can truly heal. You can truly have joy in your relationship. You can truly be in love again. You can do all of these things, but it takes work. And so some of that was the the certifications that I got. And so now I work with subconscious reprogramming tools, which is similar to EMDR, which I did for about a year, but similar to that. And I just, I really am, have dealt with a lot of my triggers and my emotions and my wounds. And, you know, we, you mentioned tra- uh, kind of trauma debris before, like from my previous relationship, when all of this came out, it was like any trauma or emotional wound that had not been resolved loaded right up to the surface and caused all this like trauma brain debris for me. And it was really overwhelming. And so it was a process of just identifying all of these and dealing with them one at a time as things came up and as I identified them. And he was doing that work in in his individual therapy too. And and then as things continue to shift in the relationship, we just talk about it and make sure that we're consistently on the same page with where we are and where we're going. Do you guys use any communication structure or is it just like, hey, I'm feeling really triggered right now because of this or gosh, that movie really triggered this. I need a minute. Or do you have like a structure like when you I feel any like specific tools you use? So there's a little bit of structure and a lot of flexibility. So we didn't struggle too much with that because like I said, it just comes out my mouth. So he always knows how I'm feeling. Um, So there is that aspect to it. But we did have some structure. So some of it is that he and he actually still does this. We've never changed it every morning because the morning time was when his addiction was primarily the worst and he gets up really early and I don't. And so there's a couple hours in the morning where he's doing his morning routine, working out, journaling, doing all this kind of stuff before I even get up. And so um, to this day, this is something that we set up really early on. He comes in and periodically checks in and lets me know where he's at. Within, I don't know, within the first week or so, I was actually getting up with him like super early in the morning because I was like, oh my gosh, he told me like, this is when he acts out, like I need to be awake. And we were in survival mode, right? And then as things kind of shifted down, we created this pattern where he checks in with me and communicates and he'll basically be like, hey, I'm going to go work out. Everything's fine this morning. Because, you know, it was like, hey, tell me if you're triggered, like, let me, you know, what's going on. And then we did also have a check-in that uh, my therapist actually recommended and I really liked it. And it was a couple questions that we would ask each other um, like at night when we went to bed. And so every couple can structure this a little bit differently. The recommendation was pray or do a devotional if you want to. And then there was another question that was, you know, basically very generic. How was your day? Or tell me something that happened today that I didn't know. So starting the conversation, Uh, then it was tell me something that you like or appreciate about me. And that started a little one sided. <laughs> oh my God. So, I mean, just being honest, I was like, yeah, tell, yeah. Me some, tell me something I can appreciate. I'm just picturing it like, oof. yeah, tell me something you like and appreciate about me, Patrick. And uh, maybe in six months, we'll uh, double side this. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, so that over time. I like that you appreciate those things. <laughs> I, I appreciate that you appreciate me. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that, to, but to be honest, I mean, to, to be truly, truly honest, I mean, that was not easy at first, right? And I was like, I don't really feel like answering this. And to his credit, you know, he gave me the space that I needed. He was going to answer these questions. And if I did not feel like it that day, I was not really going to give him much of an answer. And that was for a long time how it was. And then one of the other questions was, what can I do for you tomorrow? And again, that was very much like, yeah, you better not be asking me to do anything, right? Like, you know, there's limits there. So, that kind of di- those types of questions can start the communication, right? But you can also use other questions that are just very direct, like, uh, you know, have you relapsed? Where are you at in your journey? Where are you at in your recovery journey? Now, he he typically kept me very apprised. Hey, I learned this in group today. Hey, we did this in therapy today. So I didn't have to ask too many questions. But a lot of times that may those may be some questions that you do want to ask. So just depending on like, what's what information is missing, you can create check ins that are based on what you need to feel safe to know where your relationship is at. And and then you guys do the annual polygraph. That's another tool that you use 
to, to keep, you know, it's, it's the way I look at it is your version of a drug test, right? Is I love that. That's a great, that is a great way to view it. Yeah. So he took one twice the first year because we went through a full disclosure process, which is like a therapeutic. He took several weeks, maybe even a couple months to create this document that listed out all of, all of his sexual acting out behaviors. And then sat, we sat down with our therapist and he read that to me. And so part of that process was him going through a polygraph to confirm that everything on there was true and accurate and complete. And so I knew going into that situation that the information that I was getting was, you know, the best version that he could give me. So he took one then and then he took one at the end of that first year and then decided to do it annually after that. What was the most surprising thing that you learned about yourself in this process that you obviously didn't know? Like, you know, you obviously learned about your attachment style and his attachment style, but what was something you really didn't know about yourself that you discovered through your recovery? This is going to sound really, <laughs> sound really bad. To be honest with you, I did not know that I was that resilient. Like I... Had you told me before January 31st, everything that I was about to go through and experience and feel, I would never believe that I could have handled that. I mean, I, it was just a lot. It was really painful. It was really, really painful. And there were so many days where it was like, is this even worth it? Do I want to be doing this? This sucks, you know? But I did. And the resources were out there and they really helped me. And I really truly kind of figured out how much I could recover. And I had had other situations in the past where I've bounced back. And a lot of people with betrayal will tell you that if they've had trauma in the past, that betrayal just, it's bigger, it's worse, it's more painful, it's just more overwhelming. And that, that's the experience that I had. I think I, I, I would compare all of the things that I had in the past, combine and put them together, and it wouldn't even be like 10% of what this felt like to me. Does Patrick have any feelings about, or did he in the beginning have feelings about this information being shared and being public? How, how was that? It was hard, right? I totally get why there are not a lot of people out there doing this because there comes a point in your recovery where things kind of start normalizing again and the the drama is dying down and the consistency is getting there and your relationship is starting to improve and it's like all you want to do at that point is crawl into a hole and have a normal life and at the same time what we had done immediately was look for people that had survived right when we when all this came out and we were like is this even possible to think that we can get through this as a couple. Is it well first of all is it possible that he can can recover? Can he recover without relapsing? Can I recover? What does this look like? And then are there couples that make it? The examples of couples that made it and like I mentioned earlier actually looked happy about it. We're very few and far between. And I I mean I'll be really honest, there are people out there that talk about recovering together and they don't look happy to me. I don't get the impression that this is like a joyful experience for them. And I was like, I just don't want to be that person, right? Like, is there anyone out there that's happy? So yeah, he did have a lot of thoughts about it. It was certainly a process. We actually delayed, like I had an idea of when I wanted to do it and we delayed it for a period of time while we were kind of figuring some things out. So one of my requirements, like I really wanted to get uh, I really wanted to get through the first year and I really wanted to make sure that we were solidly on a path of recovery before publicly talking about it. Like there were many times where I wanted to, you know, share my story on social media, get empathy, get support, you know, all of those kinds of things. But it just, I just chose not to do that. I wanted, I wanted it to be a platform of hope if, if we made it right. <laughs> I needed to see first of all, that that was going to happen. And then Patrick is not, he is not, He's not a social media person, right? Um, my businesses have primarily been on social media. That's how I how I communicate and and market for um, my clients. So I'm used to it. Uh, and he's not, and he's a fairly private person. And so those there were several conversations that we had about that in the beginning. He, he kind of had a couple thoughts around it. He he was totally in support of it. We both wanted there to be examples of people in recovery. So we we were both on mission, on point there, in agreement there. He was totally supportive of what I wanted to do with my business and where I wanted to go totally supportive about me talking about it. And he said, and I was like, you're going to be, you know, let's do a video. And he was like, well, so he, he wanted very limited social media exposure. And he just had a couple thoughts around his level of involvement. But other than that, like, like in the beginning, he didn't want me to like tag him in Facebook posts and stuff like that. Other than that, 
he was totally on board. And as he has gone deeper into his recovery and feels more and more confident about it, because now he's leading men's groups. Now he has talked about it publicly multiple times in different situations in front of groups of people. Now I'm so public and it's like everybody we know knows just like all the pressure is off. I will tell you, it was funny because that first video that I posted had like has like 2 million views. Now when I posted it, sharing our story for the first time, he went to his men's group and and there there's a I guess a saying in their group that's like at least four men should know your story. He goes he goes well guys it's about four hundred thousand <laughs> and then I te- I texted him right because it was going viral like that yeah. night and I was like I was texting him updates he's like all right make that half a million you know and then now over time it's garnered about two million views so I mean his story is out there he feels really good about it and actually I'm really excited because we're gonna start our own podcast soon and it's gonna be an opportunity to put the spotlight a little bit more on his story because he doesn't show up on my social media a lot he's not you know popping into my TikTok reels very often so this is a great opportunity for us to actually sit down on the weekends and for him to share his part of recovery and and his views and so I'm actually really excited about that so he is a, l- a little slow to get on board but not really he's he's pretty yeah 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 what so I my my best friend there was this guy she dated many many years ago who cheated on her with someone we know and I've never forgiven either of them she's moved on she's married this is like you know forever ago and we always laugh like she's like let it go I'm like I, I can't let it go. like on your behalf I can no longer you know <laughs> let me just say for all women out there we appreciate you thank you <laughs> thank you for being on our side <laughs> what is do you have anybody maybe family or otherwise who has struggled to come up with the amount of understanding and forgiveness that you have uh to be honest Ashley I wish that was the case <laughs> <laughs> You need me in your life. I'll hold a grudge for 20 years. Well, I, okay. To be fair, I have a couple friends that were just very team Kyleen and I was like, thank you. But they have also, they really love Patrick and totally understand that he's in recovery and have just been like really cheerleading our, our recovery the whole time. But I guess if they had to choose a side, they'd be team Kyleen. But no, to be honest, I had the opposite experience and, and that was actually very frustrating to me because my family was almost like over understanding, over understanding. I was like, can you, can you just like hate him a little bit, please? Like Like 10 minutes. (laughs) You know, Patrick is very much the person that it's so weird because like in his addiction, it was such a weird little part of him. In the rest of his life, he is someone that when he says he's going to do something, he does it and he completes it and it doesn't matter if it's hard. And so I think a lot of people knew that about him. And so when he came out and was like, I'm doing this, they believed it. Right, right. And when you see someone and you know somebody's going to do that and you're not also simultaneously feeling the pain of the betrayal, Right. You're not going to go to the depths like that. Right. Right. That's fair. Yeah. That makes sense. They, they believed that he could make that change when he said that he could. Yeah. Well, you're amazing. Thank you so much for being here. What, where can people, if they want to work with you or find you, where can people come and find you? So on TikTok, it's just my name, Kyleen Terhune. On Instagram, it's the exact same, Kyleen Terhune. And on Facebook, if you are a betrayed spouse, um, a free Facebook group called Recover You, like you as in university, just the letter Recover You. So any of those platforms is fine to connect with me. You can send me a DM. There are links in those bios to book a discovery call to see if working together is a good fit. So we can kind of figure out what's right for you. But but yeah, I'd, I absolutely love connecting to all of the women on the different channels. It's been really amazing to see how sharing a story can validate someone else's experience. And, and that's been, that's been really cool. So yeah, thank you so much for letting me share my story. I really appreciate it so much. It was awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, that was kind of a lot of fun. You know, as an observer, my takeaway for it was just like, maybe don't wrong either of you. That was sort of oh, like, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. that was sort like of a that. takeaway I had. I mean, we talked about it, but like, $100,000 in two years. It was like, oh, wait, wait, I guess but you, let's be clear on cyber sex. It wasn't right. like these weren't date nights, right? You know, this, this was not trips to Vegas with high end escorts. That bill goes up real fast or, you know, furs for the, yeah, for the, for the, for for the, the sugar gumaw, babies, for the yeah. gumaw. Is yeah. that what he say? <laughs> yeah. The gumaw. Is that what that is on Sopranos? Yeah. I think. Yeah. No, this is full on. I'm like two things, right? Number one, not good. Number two, that's a business. <laughs> <laughs> what? You mean? <laughs> I'm just saying.
Dan. You so we we were actually just talking moments ago that sometimes you focus on the wrong part. And that and is this an instance where you heard the story and you decide but but what you heard was there's a lot of money to be made if I could get in this business. I mean, I didn't not hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I did not hear it, but I didn't hear it. You know? <laughs> no, I I am a weirdo about stuff. I I am a weirdo in the sense that like I've I've been in a car with three wives and three husbands, and there's comments about going to the strip club. And uh what one wife is like, you know, I don't want you staying out late or whatever. The other one's like, you know, I don't want you getting a lap dance, whatever. And I'm like, if you spend more than two hundred dollars <laughs> on one of those strippers, I will. <laughs> you know, like I just I don't I think sex is just such a different beast for me. And so like I just see and experience and all of that very differently. But betrayal and commitment and agreement, I don't view differently. I view the same way she does, which is, you know, if we agree that you're going to do this thing, that's the agreement. You know, I'm not okay with this. And you enter, as I always say, and I can tell she's the same way. I always say to my husband, uh, yeah, I have been the same person since the day you met. You've been very clear about who I am, what I stand for, what I think, what I need, blah, blah, blah. So there's no like, oh, by the way, 15 years down the road, suddenly this is a bait and switch. Like, no, I, I have been extremely consistent. And I, I suspect she has as well. I feel like really the the biggest thing like where I related to her was, look, we had a we had an agreement. We have, we have the same idea about this thing and, or maybe apparently not, but we had the same, we had an agreement about this thing and you did not live up to your end of the bargain. And I find that unacceptable. I mean, I just appreciated how honest she was about all of it. There was no like glossing over it or pretending like everything was just like easy or great or, you know, this, the real emotions that she experienced along the way. I really appreciated that. I mean, and yeah, it's just crystal clear, like how you couldn't do that twice, right? Like how, yeah. you, how you couldn't just completely lose trust in a person and like work that hard to build it back and then just lose it all over again. Like it, it would be impossible. It really, really would. And well, it it'd is... be impossible to do it authentically. Like you could do it and harbor anger and pain in your heart, but it would be impossible for that to be a really healthy decision, especially given where you started from. This one is really interesting. And you know, there's a lot of addictions people can have that there's like some telltale signs, there's like something that you can pick up on. But this this is, I think, particularly difficult to gain trust back because it can be so internal. It can be so well hidden. It can be, you know, if it hadn't been for the money part of this, like and even that. Right. Even that was able to be hidden for a long time. So I can understand why it would feel so like it would just rupture all kinds of areas of your life because it's just like I just can't know anymore. Like how do how am I supposed to know? You know, I think it's really important that people understand that you can have compassion for someone's addiction and walk away from it. You can say, I love you, I support you as your friend, and I'll show up for you. I'll drive you to treatment. I'll be there to pick you up, but I am not going to be in a romantic relationship with you and make these commitments. Those two things don't have to be the same thing. You, you I think people will often have empathy and compassion and say, but I, I don't want to leave him in his time of need. Relapses can be a part of the process, so on and so forth. Absolutely. And you can still show up for him. You just don't have to cohabitate. You don't have to share finances. You don't have to share a vehicle. Like there, there's, it doesn't, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. I think, it, like she said, if you're really happy and like being a beacon of hope for people and really wanting to be in the relationship, wanting to have a happy relationship, if that's doable, then great. If it's not, then I think ask yourself what you're willing to do. But they've done, I mean, I can tell she, from talking to her, she's done an incredible amount of work. And no matter what happens, I think she will have come out having greatly benefited from the recovery experience as much as as painful as this was. And I just was, I'm just really impressed too with their commitment to bringing this out. Like, yeah. I mean, talk about a problem that you probably want to keep private and you can, you could just have this be your own little thing that happens in between the two of you. And that's as far as it goes, you know, maybe you tell a few friends, but I think to her point, that's what makes people sometimes be willing to come forward is 
when they see somebody else do it first. So I, I commend them on what that takes to to put themselves in the line of fire of some scrutiny and whatever, and in the hopes of offering hope for people who find themselves in this situation and are working really hard to try to get their way out of it. Absolutely. Well, um, I think if you find yourself in a similar situation to this, it seems like Kylene's there for you and she's willing to help if that's something that would be helpful for you. As always, we're rooting for you this week, whatever you're going through. Um, we hope that there's improvement. And if there's something that you have like shame about, you just feel like it's getting worse and worse. Like maybe this is the moment to tell somebody about what's going on. Ashley, anything that you want to leave the people with? If you are struggling, please reach out, check out Kyleen on social media, K-Y-L-E-N-E, last name Terhune, T-E-R-H-U-N-E. She does coaching. She has some online workbooks and classes and things that are really awesome. And I think could be super helpful for women who are or partners who are going through any of this stuff. So please check it out if this would be a useful resource. And we will see you next week. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.